Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, everybody at home. Um, how many people for the first time coming to class tonight? Welcome to all of you. Welcome back. Everyone else, welcome to everybody for the first time at home. Uh, Against the Stream is a Buddhist meditation community that um, we've existed for about 15 years or so here in Los Angeles. And um, several levels to practicing Buddhist uh, path. One is certainly the meditation. And a lot of people come for the meditation, learn some meditation. It's only one piece of it. Meditation is an important, a core key component to practicing Buddhism. But then there's the, the whole path, uh, which is much more than just our meditation, our speech, our action, our livelihood, our ethics, uh, wisdom that we uh, are trying to develop, um, all of which is connected on some level or another to being mindful, to being present, to being aware, awake. And, and a key piece of it is community, is uh, meeting and connecting with and communicating with other people who are also trying to be mindful, who are also trying to be aware, awake, free from suffering and on the path together. Uh, the Buddha says there's, there's uh, or Buddhism says there's, there's three refuges, three, uh, and, you know, refuge, which means uh, an, uh, a safety or a place of protection or um, protection from suffering. He says it will come from taking refuge in Buddha, which means not, not the statue, not the religion, not the person, but the actual term Buddha, which means to be awake. Take refuge in your own potential to be awake, which to me simply means something like to see clearly, to see reality clearly as it is, and to respond wisely, to see clearly and respond with wisdom to, to reality. And the wise response is the response that ends suffering, not creates more suffering. And so like when we're creating our suffering, we're not awake, we're not, we're not Buddha. We're, we're stuck in, in samsara in this realm of, of wandering through, clinging and craving and self-centeredness. And so, but we can take refuge in the inner potential that all beings have, all of us the potential, the ability to, to wake up. So that's a lot of what we're doing here together. We're taking refuge together, not in a formal religious sense, but just in like, I wanna wake up, that's why I'm here. I wanna be as free as fucking possible. How, how much freedom can I get? <laughs> um, and you take refuge in the Dharma, and the Dharma on some levels is the teachings, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the, the truth of Dharma, uh, translates as something like truth, the truth about reality. And uh, so it's both like learning the teachings and, and contemplating them and studying them and, and saying, does this make sense? And how can I apply this? So like a theoretical grasp on Buddha's teachings on Buddhism is, is important. 
Um, but more important than starting to know what the Four Noble Truths are is experiencing, knowing the, the truth directly through your uh, meditation, through your actions, through your uh, way of being in the world. And the third refuge is community. And that's sort of where I was going with all of this, which is we, we come together to, you know, actually take refuge in each other. Uh, and that is not like, I'm just here to meditate and I'm just here to listen to the teacher, but actually I'm here to be part of a community and to take refuge in the relationships of other people who are trying to be wise. We live in a world where wisdom is incredibly rare. And, you know, you come into a room like this and it's not like everybody's all, you know, super wise, a bunch of hooligans in here. Um, but we're trying, right? It's a community of people who have the intention to be mindful, have the intention to be kind, to be compassionate, to be forgiving. We're, this is a, a community of people who want to wake up, who want to take refuge, who want to become a refuge. And... Um, it's a core reason why I open meditation centers, why I teach is not so much um, just to educate you or guide you, but to facilitate you getting to know each other. And, you know, the community getting to know uh, and, and have those friendships and those connections that are sustainable outside of your coming to class once or twice a week or however long you often you come to class. So one of my, you know, ways that for many years I've been doing, and then during COVID, I haven't really, wasn't doing it and started again a couple of weeks ago, is uh, start by, before we meditate, take a, a few minutes to uh, introduce yourself to some of the people around you, some of the people in the room that you don't know yet. And, you know, if you're, uh, you know, you don't have to make physical contact, you don't have to shake hands or hug, but just introduce yourself to some of the people around the room even if you have to stand up because you know both of the people sitting next to you, you can stand up and introduce yourself to someone. And uh, at home, I'm gonna throw you into some uh, Zoom room breakout groups and you guys can introduce yourself to whoever you get connected with in there. Just take a couple minutes to do this.
Hard to stop once you get started. <laughs> give a few more seconds for the Zoom breakout rooms to come back. want to acknowledge that um, depending on how active and engaged you have been, uh, that can be, even just that can be pretty intense, just being in a room with, I don't know, 40 people, however many people are in here tonight, 40, 50 people, something like that. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's intense. A lot of people are still just emerging from isolation and um, And then talking to strangers is a little intense anyways. And um, but it feels like even more so these days. But that's, I think that's part of the refuge in Sangha is um, what a great place to practice. Like these are the kind of people you wanna practice being uncomfortable with, who are going to like hopefully be kind and supportive and empathetic to like, oh, you're suffering too? Yeah, me too. Like, and honest about it rather than, you know, it's like so much of our conversation is that humility of like, yeah, we're here because we're suffering. And we're not pretending like we're not. We're here because we are interested in ending suffering. And, um, and so ideally that's a lot of what 
we're trying to develop is the kind of connections that will include all kinds of difficulties and conflicts and opportunities for forgiveness and, you know, um, with people who are also willing to stay in the conversation you know, with as much skill as we currently have uh, and without the unrealistic idea or unrealistic expectation that like, well, hey, you're like a meditator, you're supposed to be good at this. <laughs> um, you know, we're only as kind of as, as skilled as we are at the moment, all of us on this kind of learning curve of trying to be more present, trying to be more friendly, trying to be more uh, patient and forgiving with ourselves and with each other. And meditation is one of the main ways that we increase those skills. Part of it's talking to each other and then part of it's just sitting and going inward and seeing our own mind, our own emotions, our own, uh, the Dhamma, the truth is revealed right here uh, through our own attention rather than looking out there for the truth. You know, one of the kind of core simple ways of Buddhism is like everything is in here. All of the truth will be revealed, the causes of suffering and also the ability to end suffering through turning towards your own mind, not ignoring it, not transcending it, not, you know, uh, going on some vision, you know, quest, I don't know what the term is, but not some astral projection where you're avoiding reality into some other, but here, right here in your own body. The, we start the meditation with the first foundation, the body, present time awareness of the body. And uh, at one point the Buddha said, all of the Dhamma, all of the, everything that you're seeking, all of the truth that you're looking for will be re revealed right here in your own body. That this body that causes all of your suffering, this mind and body that crave and have aversion and this self-centered mind that is the problem is also the solution. And by paying attention to it, by being mindful of it, you will, uh, we will directly experience reality as it is and build the skills to meet it more wisely. So let's do that together for a little while. Find a way to sit that's upright and relaxed and when you're ready, allowing your eyes to be closed and your posture to settle, finding an upright, relaxed position, letting the hands rest, letting the eyes be gently closed, releasing all of the unnecessary tension that we tend to hold in our face, releasing the brow, the jaw, shoulders, chest, and your belly, see if you can soften your belly so that you're upright without being tight or uptight or tense in the stomach.
establishing mindfulness in the body. There's so much going on, sensations from head to toe, emotions felt in the body, our energy level, alert or drowsy, anxious or relaxed. Choose to place our attention on the breath as a focused point, as an object of awareness, breathing in. One knows I breathe in is the Buddha's teaching. Give your attention, your full attention to your breath. Let everything else be in the background for now, all of the other sensations and thoughts, sounds. Mindfulness is present time, non-judgmental awareness, the quality of investigation, of curiosity, interest to what's happening. And it works best if we bring the intention to be kind and accepting, loving kindness and radical acceptance as the lens through which we experience the body. Even if you can't quite do that yet, just the intention to try to be friendly and kind towards your own mind, no matter how many times it wanders off into planning and remembering. Gently returning to the breath for now. Breathing out, know that you're breathing out. Receive the full sensations of each inhalation, each exhale. With a kind awareness, a presence that investigates the impermanent nature of the breath, how it has a beginning, middle, end.
when you notice tension, your jaw becomes tight or your belly or shoulders. As you exhale, soften, release the jaw, the belly, the shoulders. Tension is often a, a sign of resistance, avoidance. Releasing, relaxing is an act of compassion. Of non-clinging.
connecting and sustaining as much as we can present time awareness of the body sitting, breathing. Revealing the reality of impermanence. And perhaps beginning to see how even though you are trying to ignore your mind, the mind just keeps thinking. Plans and memories, hopes and fears. In some ways, paying attention to the breath and body teaches us so much about our mind, the impersonal nature, the non-volitional tendency of the mind to continue thinking even when we are not paying attention to it. This body that is comprised of the four elements, water element, be mindful that almost three quarters of this physical body that feels so solid is actually liquid. the air element experience with each breath that this body itself is porous, is a breathing organism, the skin breathes.
and that it's hot in here. I'm feeling the temperature, the 98 or so degrees core temperature of your body. Feeling the air conditioner cooling the outside, the core temperature. high 90s, fire, heat. We experience the earth element with the solidity, the calcium, the bones, the skeleton, upright skeletons meditating together. These elements forming skin and bones and hair and teeth, all of the organs, tendons. And a nervous system that experiences pleasure and pain. Bringing mindfulness to the feeling tone of all the different aspects of your body. What is feeling pleasant? Perceived as enjoyable in this moment, if anything. What is feeling unpleasant, painful, hard to bear, uncomfortable? And how much of this experience, this body and heart and mind are experiencing neutral sensation can feel their arms and legs, but they're neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Front and back, awareness of the body, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, but here.
rather than ignoring the mind, include the mind, include the sounds, open, inclusive awareness of your heart and mind, body, thoughts arising and passing, emotions, being felt, known, as you bring your non-judgmental awareness to what's happening moment to moment, pay careful attention to the tendency to cling, to crave for more pleasant experiences and less unpleasant ones. The instinctual drive away from pain towards pleasure.
the more we pay attention, the more we see how the mind is constantly craving and clinging. We set our intention to let go, let go of those thoughts, let go of your views, your opinions, let go of the past and future. Just be fully present here. Breaking our addiction to figuring it out. Just feel the next breath. Just observe the next thought rising and passing. Any questions about the meditation practice, the instructions, the experience that you're having as you bring mindfulness to your breath and body and heart and mind? Please. Oh. You said something interesting tonight, which I mean, uh, a couple weeks ago, about like, uh, just to convert to research. You mentioned attitude. I'm not sure if you mean clinging and standing on some of that. The different places to look. Yeah. Um, question or comment about how in the instructions um, tonight and, and maybe last week too, I throw things in there like, um, you know, become mindful of like the energy level in your body and kind of places to direct the attention like okay what's not just the breath 
And often mindfulness, we can get stuck on just, am I breathing in or out? But the Buddha's instructions are more expansive. He says this whole body that is made up of the four elements and the 32 parts and, you know, this nervous system that experiences pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And when you're mindful, you can start to feel like, oh, kind of I'm anxious. And I feel that in my body and this vibration and this tension and, or I'm tired and I feel that energy of like this torpor. <laughs> um, and you can be, be mi mindful of more than just breath or thoughts or sounds, you know, just the gross manifestations, but more and more subtle, what else is happening here? And that's kind of the inquiry. What else is happening here right now? and using the mind to investigate, am I breathing in, am I breathing out? And, um, and sometimes I do the four elements like I did tonight, but that's such an, I find it so interesting. And it's one of the traditional things that the Buddha taught in the first foundation of mindfulness of, you know, just know like this, like three quarters, 70, whatever percent, of, this is like a water body. And we think like, I'm solid, I'm a, meat body, <laughs> flesh and bones. And really like we're mostly saline, like we're mostly the same shit that's in the ocean. We're mostly that same, you know, fluid that we're in the womb with, you know, is the body. There's this, this water body. And, and then there's a little bit of earth and, and temperature and meditating on like, like, you know it if you're cold or you're hot, externally but just tuning into like it's 98 degrees in here which is too hot i don't like to be that hot <laughs> when it's 98 degrees out there i'm like fucking it's hot but it's always 98 degrees in here and just being able to with mindfulness feel that temperature and then here i'm cranking the ac so you're like well it feels, i don't feel 98 at all it's like 72 in here freezing but not in the core and so being able to bring that investigative awareness um, what was the other piece the um or the attitude right and so then when we expand to the mind there's uh, what's happening the process of thoughts arising and passing there's the contents of thoughts right this is a plan this is a memory this is a hope this is a fear this is judgment this is resentment this is lusting this is like you know like you start to see your mind and see what your mind is doing but then there's also this sort of attitude that your mind is thinking with right is it's and sometimes you can have like all kinds of unpleasant thoughts arising but there's sort of a friendly attitude of your mind it's kind of like i really fucking hate you <laughs> you know like with an you know kind of a sense of humor or like a, I noticed that like my, my my mind's attitude has a lot to do with how personally I take what my mind is doing what is the the kind of uh, environment in which these thoughts and emotions are arising and you can tune into that and you can start to see it and the more you do loving kindness and the more you do compassion and the more you the more you create a a wise attitude a relationship to what's happening in your body what's happening in your heart and mind and you can check in with it when of course all of mindfulness and it's 
we say it, I say it all the time, but it's harder to do, or easier to say than to do, which is non-judgmental awareness. So, because, right, when you turn towards your mind and your attitude, you're like, well, I want to have a PMA, right, positive. I want to have a positive mental. I want to have a friendly. I'm trying to do that. But then non-judgmental awareness actually turned towards your mind. It's like, that's not friendly at all. I've got a real fuck you attitude in my own mind, and it's sad, and it's depressed, and it's whatever it is, you know, it's um, you know, my attitude is loneliness, you know, like I'm meeting the loneliness with this core belief of I will always be alone or, um, rather than oh, loneliness is present, but that's okay. Right. Different. You know, if you have this, does it make sense? Like if there's a friendly attitude towards a difficult emotion is much different than when there's a really tight, uh, you know, taking it personal relationship towards a difficult emotion. And you can't just make it happen. You know, I'm a, I'm a fan of uh, bad brains, you know, punk rock uh, mantra of like, keep a PMA, a positive mental attitude. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of that. Um, and you can't make that happen. You know, you can't, we don't have the power to just decide, I'm going to have a positive outlook. You can state that as an aspiration. You can keep redirecting to having a, a more positive, a more friendly to what we're doing in meditation, but you can't make. But if there's anything that we learn in meditation, I think is like, you're not actually in control of your own mind. You have some influence. You can train your mind, but you can't make it be kind. You say, mind, be kind. And your mind says, <laughs> fuck you. Maybe. My mind does. Maybe yours doesn't. Maybe yours is like, yes. Okay. <laughs> I will be kind now. <laughs> A lot of influence over... Uh, especially the longer we meditate over that internal environment. Um, and it's like the breath. You're not really in control of your breath either, even if it feels like you are. The more we're mindful of the breath, the more we see like, my body's breathing me. I'm not, you know, like I, I can have some influence and I can choose to take a deep breath or shallow breath. But really, like, if I relax, my body just is breathing. It's automatic and I'm not really in control of it. And then you go to sleep and you keep breathing. <laughs> you know, like, it's not really like, I am not breathing. The body is breathing me, whatever that is. I wanted to, um, there's these four little books. I did one the other a couple weeks ago. Ajahn Amaro, one of my favorite teachers, did these four miniature books on um, the Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes, and um, came from a retreat that he was teaching where he was teaching this retreat on dependent origination, the 12 links of dependent origination. And he was looking at dukkha, the first noble truth, and which is uh, the unsatisfactory or the suffering nature of, of human, uh, unenlightened human existence. He was looking at it all through dependent origination and looking at it all through the lens of addiction. 
um, and not just for us recovering addicts, but for human beings. And this, this model where he's just like, you know, basically in some way or another, the Buddha was saying, you're suffering because you're addicted to pleasure. And if you can break your addiction to pleasure, you won't suffer anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and, and so a lot of us, myself and so many of the sangha the community are in recovery from you know substance or behavior uh addictions and so we you know like there's a way in which the kind of language around um breaking addiction makes sense to us because we've done it to alcohol or drugs or certain behaviors or um but this kind of final frontier like of breaking your addiction to pleasure and developing a non-attached relationship to pleasure. And, and maybe the final, final frontier, which is breaking our addiction to our minds, breaking our addiction to the, the part of the mind that takes everything personal, I, me, mine, and that doesn't have that positive mental attitude, but has a fear-based survival instinct <laughs> driving its craving and aversion. I pulled up the, uh, I've done this, I haven't done it for a while, so I'll do it again, but I pulled up the, the 20 questions of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is how uh, people, ident you know, like if you think you might have, be an alcoholic, they say like, well, check out these 20 questions and then you can diagnose yourself. If you answer yes to like, I don't know what it is, more than half or something like that or if you answer yes so so i'm going to do this and contemplate it but instead of drinking thinking do you lose time from work due to thinking <laughs> is thinking making your home life unhappy <laughs> Do you think because you are shy around other people? Is thinking affecting your reputation? Have you ever felt remorse after thinking? <laughs> Have you got into financial difficulties as a result of your thinking? <laughs> Do you turn to lower companions and inferior environments when thinking? <laughs> Does your thinking make you careless of your family's welfare? Has your ambition decreased since thinking? Do you crave a think, a thought, a think? <laughs> do, you, do you crave thinking at a definite time daily? Do you want to think in the morning? <laughs> Does thinking cause you difficulty sleeping? Has your efficiency decreased since thinking? Is thinking jeopardizing your job or business? Do you think to escape from worries and troubles? Do you think alone? <laughs> Have you ever had a complete loss of memory as a result of thinking? Has your physician ever treated you for thinking? Do you think to build up your self-confidence? Have you ever been in a hospital or institution on account of thinking? Oh, it says if you've if you've answered yes to two, the chances are you're an alcoholic. 
If you've answered yes to three or more, you are definitely addicted to your mind. So I want to shift to Amaro's uh, book, and this is actually about appreciative joy, and the name of it is Just One More. And how often does that thought arise in your life? Whether it's about potato chips or thinking, I'm just going to, I've already, I've already kind of contemplated this 3,700 times, but I'm going to go over it one more time <laughs> before I get to sleep. Let me just think about this a little bit more. And the core formula of Buddhism is that it's our relationship to pleasure. It's craving, tanha, craving, is the Buddhist word, uh, thirst, that is the cause of our unhappiness, is the cause of our suffering. And um, that it's not your fault. Good news is, bad news is, it's here to stay on some level or another. Uh, the good news is, it's not your fault. It's just what it's like to have incarnated as a human being and uh, with a nervous system and a, a survival instinct. And there's craving. We all have it. And um, you know, if you are a recovery person, it's not just because you're an addict that you have craving, it's because you're a human. And all of the non-addicts also have craving and suffer about it all the time. And, you know, this sort of recovery thing of like, it's your alcoholic thinking is mostly bullshit, actually, when you start to understand what the Buddha said, which is like, it's actually just your human mind that craves. Now, the addict of the alcoholic is an extreme manifestation <laughs> of the normal craving tendency that we all have. It is, you know, does, you know, everyone has craving for pleasure. Not everyone uh, drinks to the point of, of uh, you know, dependence and addiction. Not everybody, um, you know, there are people that can moderate substances. They're mythical a little bit, I think. <laughs> it seems to be true. There are people that can do that. And then there's people who can't. Um, you know, as an aside, the Buddha uh, was pretty clear that if you want to do this path, whether you're an alcoholic or an addict or not, uh, it's best to fully abstain from drugs and alcohol in order to maintain mindfulness consistently. Um, because we, we have a present time awareness based practice and you can't be buzzed or high or intoxicated and also mindful. It blocks mindfulness. And so he's like, you really want to stay awake, let go of the recreational drug and alcohol use, period. Now that supports, you know, it's the fifth precept of Buddhism, uh, supports a lot of us who are in recovery and we're like, good, I need to anyways, that's supportive of me. And then there's a lot of people who are like, wait a minute, what's this bullshit? I came to get spiritual. Now you're telling me I can't get high? Uh, wrong cult. I'm going somewhere else.
the second chapter of the book he calls um this is from a dharma talk he's giving he, and, and they, they name it desire is a liar <laughs> and just for you know how many how often have your desires misled you and you are so convinced i want i need just one more i have to have not just drugs and alcohol like just all of the time in your relationship to pleasure in your relationship to people places whatever it is and how often is it leading you down a dead end he says when the mind says i must have or she's she's got one i need one of those too or I've got to have a better one than him. We shouldn't consider that it's telling the truth. I like that. We shouldn't even consider that our minds are telling us to the truth when it says things like this. I have to have it. Just one more. Now, and that's where this sort of thinking problem, it's not that the mind thinks that it's a problem. It's that we believe it. You, that we think, well, I, I had this thought, so it, I have to believe it. It's our identification. It's our uh clinging to the thought it's our belief and he says you shouldn't even consider that it's true that it's telling the truth it's an impulse that the mind is coming up with certainly we don't have to go along with it did you know that did you know that you don't have to go along with what your mind is telling you to do because i did not know that which i'm pretty sure is why i'm a crackhead <laughs> like was why i'm an addict in the first place is because my mind just kept telling me to chase pleasure and i just kept going yes sir <laughs> and maybe normal maybe people maybe there are some people who actually know uh i don't you have a choice over whether or not you obey your mind i did not know that before i started meditating before i started bringing mindfulness this it was like a revelation it was an intervention wow my mind i don't have to do what my mind is telling me to do and so you know amaro is just like as though it's simple logic it's an impulse that the mind is coming up with certainly we don't have to go along with it if we learn to watch that impulse and recognize that it's a lie we will not get caught in it then we won't have to create the feeling of disappointment or lack we will find that we are much more content and happy with the way things are. Such a simple, sounds so good. <laughs> if I just stop believing the deluded parts of my mind, the confused part, the just one more, the I have to have it, the core craving. Uh, and he says desire is a lie. I like to make a distinction between desire and craving. Because I feel like desire says, I want it, but I don't have to have it. You know, the feeling of like, oh yeah, like I want it, but I don't have to have it. I want life to be pleasant, but I can tolerate all of the unpleasantness. It's that I have to have pleasantness all of the time where I'm suffering. It seems to be the problem. He goes on. Even if we don't get what we want, we will realize that, that nothing is missing. Even when your mind is saying you have to have it, you want it. You, we, we, and this is like, this is liberation. Not that you no longer 
have those thoughts, not that you no longer uh, want, but that you don't have to get what, you know, you know you're fine even when you don't satisfy your, your desires, your cravings. He says, we can learn to use the structures of the limits of a retreat. He, this is on a retreat, uh, a monastic life or those that are part of the lay life as a good opportunity to explore these themes. To look at the mind's habit of chasing after a desire or an aversion. We can make an effort to not follow the craving, but to know this is a feeling. This is a very potent feeling, perhaps. It's very strong, but it's just a feeling. The mind might make a strong case. I can't stand this. I've got to get away, or I've got to have some. But we can learn to know that as a movement, a wave, a feeling in the heart, to know that the craving, that desire is a lie. It's so fucking convincing though. How often are we fooled by the mind's lie that we have to have it and then suffer about either getting it and then suffering about like, fuck, it didn't work. I got what I wanted and it was too impermanent. That craving is repetitive. It's just, I need more now, one more or a million more. <laughs> uh, or you don't get it and you think, oh, I would have been happy if I got it. It's a lie. It's not the truth. It's not the whole story. It's merely a mental impulse. When we are able to recognize that, this is a feeling of liking and the mind is trying to run away with it. This is a feeling of disliking and the mind is trying to run away with it. At that very moment, we're looking at the bridge between feeling and craving. You know the difference? So in meditation tonight, I said, you know, like, be mindful of your breath and your body and now investigate what's pleasant, what is feeling pleasant, what's feeling unpleasant. And that there is a ability to say like, this is just pleasant and I don't have to cling to it. It's impermanent, pleasant thought, feeling, sensation, emotion, attitude. But there's this, without training, there's this almost instant Pleasant attachment. I like it. I want it. I want to keep it. I want more of it. And it's not a lack of morality. It's not just your traumatic childhood that's making that happen. It is your survival instinct. This is normal for everyone. It's pleasant. I want it. I want more. We're looking at the bridge between feeling and craving, second foundation of mindfulness. <clears throat> if, we are, if your mindfulness practice <clears throat> is only paying attention to your breath and you're not opening to the second foundation, which is identifying what's pleasant, what's unpleasant, what's neutral, you're not going to um, ever get to the place of uh, what the Buddha's teaching. You're never going to get to the place of changing your relationship to pleasure and pain and learning to be and, and to your mind. And so we use the breath as an anchor, start mindfulness of breathing, get present here. And then when you're present here, even just a little bit present, investigate your relationship to your perception of the sounds, of the thoughts, of the sensations, what's pleasant, what's unpleasant, what's neutral. And then you start to see it's not pain equals suffering. Because for the most part, the untrained mind you think like, if I'm uncomfortable, I'm unhappy. 
what we're doing is saying, actually, it's possible to learn to be uncomfortable and totally happy, completely at ease with discomfort because we so radically shift our relationship to, we develop compassion, we develop tolerance, mercy. And so it's no longer this pain equals suffering. Pain with resistance, with aversion, with judgment, with fear, with a lack of acceptance equals suffering. But it's not pain's fault. <laughs> it's the aversion that's causing the suffering. Likewise, with pleasure, you start to see there's the feeling and the pleasure. You don't, you know, it's not, it's pleasant, so I have to have it. I have to be attached to it. I have to, it's just pleasant. It's not, it's not pleasure doesn't equal happiness, but it also doesn't equal suffering. It's our relationship. How do we respond to that pleasant moment without training, clinging aversion? That is the most helpful place to bring our attention. We are coming to the bridge and choosing not to cross it. We can recognize, yes, this is a strong feeling. This is very compelling, but I don't have to cross this bridge. That's a tremendous power we have, the freedom to make that choice. And essentially, this is how we can liberate ourselves from the cycles of rebirth, the cycles of addiction. We can train our minds to recognize that we have a choice not to cross the bridge to not let the mind get absorbed into craving, clinging, and becoming, and then to experience directly the freedom and peacefulness, the joyfulness that comes from living unselfishly. So when I heard this and started to experience it in my meditation and this uh, question about human free will, maybe some of my recovery of like, well, they're, they're talking about higher power, God's will and in 12 step recovery and, and Buddhism is saying like, well, we don't really talk about those sort of theistic things. And uh, you know, what's the difference between self-will versus uh, you know, self-care, wisdom and free will. Like, what do you think? Like do human beings really have free will? Are you choosing? I mean, does, does free will meaning, mean choosing? Are you choosing to cling to pleasure? Are you choosing to take everything that happens in your mind personal? I mean, are you, do you wake up in the morning and say like, you know what, I'm gonna really just be self-centered all day. I'm gonna, I have the freedom to choose and I'm gonna choose that. And I also am gonna choose to hate all of the pain that comes along and I'm gonna choose to hate, get addicted to anything even slightly pleasant. <laughs> I feel like part of what this dependent origination uh, model that, that Amaro is talking about, the Buddhist teaching, is saying that without mindfulness, you're just in this cycle. Humans are just in this cycle of it's pleasant, cling to it. You don't, there's not even really a choice. Without mindfulness, it's an instinctual drive. It's pleasant, cling to it. It's unpleasant, hate it, push it away. All by itself, it just happens. You're not choosing like, I, I think I'm gonna hate pain. I'm gonna be aversive. I'm gonna be uh, afraid of pain. It's just all by itself. It just, you know, it's just instinctual. With mindfulness, I like that image that he's using. There's a bridge. Okay, I'm at this pleasure bridge. 
am I going to cross it? All right, crossing the pleasure bridge usually means clinging, craving, suffering. There's this pain bridge. Crossing it usually means aversion, anger, fear. Am I going to cross it? He's saying with mindfulness, when we train our mind, when we meditate, when we do what we're doing, you'll develop more and more ability to choose. How am I going to relate to this pleasant thought that has arisen? Because I'm awake to it. I'm aware. I'm paying attention now. I see it. Oh, this is a really pleasant thought. Am I going to cling to it? This is a really pleasant sensation. Am I going to cling to it? And there's this drive to cling. And so letting go, non-attachment, not crossing that bridge. Of course, they make it, us Dharma teachers always make it sound so simple. Like just, and you will live unselfishly. <laughs> and, you know, years and years and years of training the mind, you get to embody it a bit more. And in each moment, there is that ability. If I'm being mindful, there's more choice. There's more space between, what is it? Uh, impulse and uh, reaction. So the whole point here is, um, you know, first noble truth, suffering. Second noble truth, uh, craving. But it's the craving that conditions the suffering. It's the feeling. It's pleasant, unpleasant. Our relationship to pleasure and pain and neutrality that dictate whether or not we're going to suffer about what's happening. Does it make sense? The simple fact here is it's not what's happening. We've spent most of our lives blaming what's happening for whether or not we're happy, whether or not we're at peace or at ease. It's, it's not, right? And that's just, it's totally normal. It's this, that was painful, so I'm unhappy. I'm suffering about it. Rather than this radical perspective, which was like, it was painful and I didn't have enough compassion for it. I met it with hatred. And so I created suffering about that painful experience. I created suffering rather than it was painful. So I suffered because that's the only choice. If it's painful, you suffer. Buddhism's big promise of you can end your suffering a big fucking promise you can end your suffering and and in early buddhism in this lifetime through your own efforts in this lifetime you can so radically shift your relationship to pleasure and pain that you won't suffer anymore you can do that did you like this is a fucking huge <laughs> it's a high bar have compassion for pain you won't suffer about pain anymore. You'll be like, yep, that hurts. My knee hurts. <laughs> yep. But I meet it with friendliness. You can train your mind to do that, your heart. Pleasure. Natural to cling, to crave, to become addicted. The mind, that sort of self-centered thinking problem, normal. Through meditation, breaking our addiction to the mind, breaking our addiction to that impulsive belief, I have to have it, one more. Practicing renunciation, practicing not satisfying the cravings, letting them arise and pass, seeing, oh, yep, just a thought, just a feeling. Just, and I love that he says, it's a lie. 
I love that he's not so gentle. I, I tend to kind of be like, well, it's just confusion. He's like, fuck that. It's a lie. Your mind is a liar. Now, we don't want to get too adversarial with ourselves and too judgmental and you know, too skeptical, but there's like a healthy skepticism towards our own minds. Like, yeah, my mind lies to me every day. And anybody that doesn't know that just isn't wise or isn't being honest, is in some level of denial about what's actually internally happening. The mind lies. And even, you know, and, and I think that this is important because we think like, yeah, well, maybe my mind lies because I'm unenlightened, but enlightened beings, like the Buddha, do you think the Buddha's mind was a liar? Like maybe you have enough humility to be like, well, my mind's a liar, but I'm a degenerate. <laughs> but like if, if I was a kind spiritual person, then my mind wouldn't be a liar, right? Like the, uh, the nice, you know, spiritual ladies, their minds don't lie to them the way my mind lies to me. Or the Buddha mind, you know, but the, the Buddha fully enlightened, verge of enlightenment, he's attacked by Mara. Mara is the liar. Mara is the part of our mind, of his mind, of your mind, of everyone's mind that lies to you and says you're unworthy, you don't have the ability, you need one more craving, aversion, that mind. And he said, I battled with this part of my mind and I overcame it with compassion and I overcame it with non-attachment and I, uh, I saw that it's just not self, not who I am, just what the mind does. But even fully liberated, totally enlightened Buddha, mind kept lying to him. Mara kept returning and saying, hey, Buddha, you should suffer about this. I know there was that other shit that you saw through and, you know, your celibate and all that stuff. But you, you know, okay, okay. But you should, this one you should really suffer about. And basically anytime your mind is telling you you should suffer about this, it's Mara. It's lying to you. This one is worthy of suffering about. And, and right, the kind of message of you should cling to it, you should get attached to it, is a message of you should suffer about it. This is worth clinging to. This is worth suffering about. This is worth having aversion towards. This is worth suffering about. Resentment, suffering, <laughs> craving, suffering. It's not what's happening. It's how we relate to what's happening. All right, I'm almost out of time already, so I'm going to jump to the back of the book where the good shit is. It's all good shit. He says, samsara is what we call, this is a Buddhist term for this realm, what we call the earth realm or kind of human existence. Uh, includes six different realms. I don't need to get into that. He says, samsara means endless wandering, going around and around, repeating the same patterns. 
It's a cycle of birth and death, a cycle of addictions. The philosopher George Santayana famously said, those who do not learn from the past are condemned to repeat it. The experience of dukkha, suffering itself, can be an exit point from the cycle of addiction. When we experience dukkha, it can ripen in two, two ways. One is to further dukkha. When we experience dissatisfaction, discontent, loneliness, alienation, it simply makes us hungry for another hit of our drug of choice, whether it's nicotine praise, truffles, or jhanas. There's a whole part in here where he's criticizing the meditators who get addicted to their meditation experience and are chasing bliss and are chasing the you know, jhanas is the, uh, the car, uh, absorptions where you have these cool experiences and you're just using meditation as another way to get high and avoid. And so he's like, that's just another addiction. That's not liberation. To take us away from discomfort or if there is a sufficient uh, wisdom and world weariness, world wearying, are you weary with the world? This is like a traditional, in order to really solidly be on the middle path, you have to know that the world is a dead end. Your happiness will never come from sense pleasures or from material accumulation. Be weary of the mind saying, but I'll be happy if I have more money. Liar. I'll be happy if I have more pleasure. Liar. But all of our minds do that and our whole society is set up to support that kind of like, consume, you'll be happy. Doesn't work for anybody, but keep trying. I had a wonderful conversation today with a person who's very successful with like maybe hundreds of millions of dollars. And he's just like, it's just so disappointing that it doesn't work. Just, you know, just doesn't work. But your mind tells you that but you it would work for you, huh? <laughs> Doesn't your mind tell you that? Didn't work, yeah. He's just not doing it right, but it would work for me. <laughs> Liar. But the mind just does that. It awakens the questions, what's the way out of this? I've been repeating this pattern for so long. What's the way out? There must be a way out. The experience dukkha then awakens faith rather than conditioning more ignorance and more rebirths. This is new, known as transcend, transcend, transcendent dependent arising. Then faith leads to the quality of delight, leading to physical and mental ease and contentment, leading to samadhi, concentration, and to insight and to liberation. As we have seen, the most accessible exit points from the addictive cycle is the link between feeling and craving. Another exit point is to not start the cycle at all, neurota, cessation, the destruction of the causes of suffering. This is to say that the ending of things that has begun, but it can also mean checking, restraining, or non-arising, the renunciation. So with the non-arising of ignorance, when there is knowing, awakened awareness, then sankaras do not arise and so forth. Moment by moment, we are not experiencing an objective world. Rather, we are experiencing our mind's representation of the world. What is the world, the Buddha answered? 
the eye is the world, the ear is the world, the nose is the world, the tongue is the world, the body is the world, the mind is the world. Is that, are you catching that? So it's not like the, there's an objective world, it's your perception. Your eye, your ear, your nose, your mind is creating you know, our perception of the world rather than it's objective and it's just, there's reality out there. Depends on how you're seeing it. Like there's, we all might have very different perspectives of the same thing based on how much awareness, how much wisdom we're bringing to what we're seeing. All right, let's see. Let's finish up. Meditation has a radical effect on our attitude. When we shift our perspective and recollect that the whole world is happening in the mind, that gives a broader context for experiencing and it imbues it with a quality of non-entanglement, breaking our addiction to the mind, acknowledging that I've become so uh, addicted, I have a thinking problem and recovery from that is non-entanglement. You don't stop thinking, just like maybe a food addict doesn't stop eating, but there's certain unhealthy foods that you refrain from, certain unhealthy uh, thought patterns that you refrain from. You're, you keep thinking, you keep taking, you know, you keep eating the good, healthy green shit. <laughs> you keep thinking the good thoughts and, and feeding that wise parts of your mind, and you practice renunciation around the self-centered, fear-based, Tendencies of the mind. Quality of non-entanglement. The heart can't get so wrapped up in every experience it likes and dislikes. When we are recognizing it's merely hearing and seeing and smelling and tasting and touching, that's what's happening. As the Buddha says in his teaching to Bahia of the bark cloth, he says to him, and this is, I don't have time, but it's a great, maybe I'll do this one next week. I'll just give it brief. Bahia um, comes to the Buddha and the Buddha's on alms round. And he says, um, uh, time is short. Uh, give me the, 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 the Dharma. Give me the teachings in as concise of a way as possible. And the Buddha's like, look, I'm busy. I'm out, I'm out you know, getting lunch. It's, you know, I'm on alms round. And, and Bahia asks him again, he's like, please, please. Like, I don't know if I'll get another chance. Uh, give me the teaching. And Buddha says, like, not now. Come back after, meet me at two o'clock. And uh, he says one more time, he says, please, Buddha, please, like I need it. It feels urgent. And so the Buddha says, okay, here's the teaching. In the scene, there is only the scene. In the herd, there is only the herd. In the sensed, only the sensed. In the cognized, the thoughts, only the cognized. Since Bahia, there is for you in the scene, only the scene. In the herd, only the herd. In the sensed, only the sensed. In the cognized, only the cognized. And you see that there is nothing here. You will therefore see that indeed there is no thing there. And so this is a teaching on not self, that there's not a permanent I experiencing the world, but that it's just sounds and thoughts and feelings and as you see that there is no thing there, you will see that you therefore cannot be located either in the world of this or in the world of that, nor in any place in between the two. This alone is the end of suffering. Non-location, non-self, non-clinging is the end of suffering. Okay. 
he gives this teaching to Bahia of the bark cloth. And Bahia said, you know, attains nirvana, gets it, boom, enlightened. And then a wild cow comes out of nowhere and tramples him to death. <laughs> Is the story. He became an arahant and he got trampled to death. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to end with this last piece. No, and I'm going to let it go. I didn't get. I didn't get all. I didn't get everywhere. That's fine. I'm going to let it go. Um, it's nine o'clock. So reflecting on this teaching on our relationship to pleasure, our relationship to pain, how mindfulness is an intervention, how having a healthy skepticism about what our mind tells us, especially when it's encouraging us to cling or to be averse or resentful, um, that our mind is just not a very trustworthy guide. And it's so hard to have that humility because we have to rely on our minds. We have to make decisions. We have to make plans. We have to One of the reasons why Sangha is so important, trustworthy, wise friendships, having relationships with people that you trust and that you can kind of check out your thinking with, and hopefully friends that are wise enough to say like, yeah, no, that's a lie. Your mind is lying to you about that. You should totally not do what your mind is telling you to do. And not just on the big things around, you know, really stupid decisions, but just on the moment to moment, like, you don't have to suffer about this. You can try to meet it with compassion. You can try to meet it with forgiveness. You can try to meet it with non-attachment, just as we're all doing. And it's one of the reasons why we gather together to remind each other of this and to support each other in this fucking radical approach to life. Sorry, I didn't have more time for... Uh, questions or discussion of this, but I went off. So thanks for attending and um, consider these things and do as you see fit. Buddhism does not ask for blind faith, it asks for wise consideration. I keep seeing those, I think it's what, like Emmy time around LA where there's all the billboards and it's like, for your consideration, please consider our TV show for the I mean, I feel like the Dharma is like that, too. It's like, here's these teachings for your consideration. Please vote for the Dharma. <laughs> Class is done by donation. Against the Stream is a nonprofit organization that is supported by your generosity. Our rent is um, about $3,500 a month is our share of the rent. Your donations pay the rent. Uh, money in excess of the uh, rent pay uh, our one employer uh, and one employee who runs the website and helps me register for the retreats and all of that stuff. And then hopefully I also receive some livelihood. Um, for the last couple of years, I haven't received much. I've been mostly paying the rent myself on this place. Um, but now we're actually at a place where the donations are starting to pay the rent and I'm starting to be able to be supported a little bit again. 
So thank you, and please continue to support Against the Stream and me and these teachings. And um, if you're making a donation here, there's a bowl if you have cash. If not, maybe Venmo is easiest, and it's written on the table there. Venmo or PayPal. If you're at home, there's a link in the chat to make donations. And please consider becoming a monthly donor of actually giving, um, I think it's like 25, 50 or $100 a month in donations just to support the organization. So if you can do that, please, please do that. And um, I'll leave it there. May any goodness that comes from our practice and discussion of the Buddha's Dharma be shared outward in, direction, in all directions with all living beings. May each one of us learn to not cross that bridge into suffering. And together may we create a positive change on this planet. Two quick announcements. Next week, I'm going to be in San Francisco, especially if you're online, uh, teaching at Soma Dharma, Jeff and Emily's um, class. So I won't be doing Monday. Monday class will happen. I have a sub coming in. So come anyways. Remember, you're not coming for the teacher. You're coming for the Sangha. So just because I'm not going to be here, don't ditch. Come and sit with each other <laughs> and um, support each other. And, and Ward, who teaches Friday nights for us, will be subbing for me on Monday. Um, and then if you know people that want to come up to San Francisco and, and see me on Wednesday night in San Francisco, people in the Bay, or um, let them know it's at Soma Dharma. What's the website, Jeff? SomaDharma.com. It's at uh, 50, 51 Mission Street, 730. And it's on my social media, 5051 Mission Street, but SomaDharma.com. If you know people up there that might want to come sit with me in the, the San Francisco Sangha. So um, thank you and uh, see you in a couple weeks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.